This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 302, entitled, Are the Opponents of First John Docetists? Yes, we've been working through First John and exploring the potential identity of the opponents that are described within. And our hope and goal is that by correctly identifying the opponents that the author First John are writing against, then we are able to better understand what the letter means as a whole. If we can see the sort of things that it's trying to protect its readers from, we could better understand what the letter is saying on basically all points. But my impression is that there's a pretty wide disagreement in regard to who these opponents actually are. So last week we looked at Gnosticism as a potential identity for the opponents, and I suggested at the end of that that I don't think that there's enough persuasive evidence to identify those opponents as adherents to Gnosticism. So this week's episode, we're going to look at the interpretation of Docetic opponents as the identity of those who separated from the Johannine community as represented in 1 John. So just like I did last week, I'm going to begin this week by detailing all of the arguments that scholars have put forth in favor of the opponents being docetic. And at that time, I'm going to give a good definition of what docetism actually is. And then after I've put forth all the arguments in favor of the docetic opponent theory, I'm going to show the arguments that scholars offer against identifying the opponents of 1 John as docetic Christians. And then in the end, you, the listener, can decide for yourself which side of the argument actually has a better reading of the data, the text of 1 John, and of history. So, were the opponents of 1 John believers in Docetism, and was First John written to strengthen the faith of this community of Christians against various docetic heresies? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at arguments in favor of the theory of docetic opponents in First John. So, we're talking about docetism or docetic Christians. You might be thinking, what in the world does this term mean? So I think it's important to define our terms. I will say that unlike the Gnostic definition, defining docetic Christians is actually a lot easier. Scholars are not arguing constantly, and they haven't been arguing for the last 60 years on how to define this term. So we're in much better footing when it comes to this particular topic. Okay, so what is my basic definition of docetism? So docetism is the denial in some way of the humanity of Jesus, the physicality of Jesus, 
for the legitimacy of his suffering. And those Christians who are docetic Christians, they make the argument that Jesus only appeared to be human, or he only seemed to be human. And this is where the word docetism comes from, because the Greek verb vokeo means to seem or to appear. So the very first time that we actually get the Greek term in Christian literature is when we have the Bishop of Antioch, and his name is Serapion, there was a particular time when he denounced the apocryphal gospel of Peter, not one of our four New Testament gospels, but an extra-biblical apocryphal gospel of Peter, and Bishop Serapion said that the gospel of Peter was a product of Docetist, and he actually uses the word vokite, to refer to these people as Docetists. Now, Bishop Serapion served as the Bishop of Antioch from 191 through 211. So this particular terminology first appears in the late 2nd century, perhaps early 3rd century, but we do have some persons earlier than Serapion actually describing what seems to be a description of what Docetist believed and taught. So, what is the scriptural case in 1 John for the opponents being adherents of Docetism? The main passage is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So I want to make sure that we take the time to look at this because the devil is in the details. So starting in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, the passage reads, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. That's 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And this is the primary passage that scholars and interpreters look at, and they see this particularly in verse 2, to where the positive confession, as it's framed here, involves Jesus as coming in the flesh. And, of course, a person that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That, of course, is the spirit of the Antichrist. So there's something going on here involving Jesus Christ as someone who has come in the flesh. Now, there's another passage that occasionally gets brought up in this discussion, but it's admittedly not as clear as the passage in 1 John Four verses 1 through 3. So in chapter 5, verse 6, we have this sort of language. It says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit that testifies because the Spirit is the truth. That's chapter 5, verse 6. And so this passage is 
defined and interpreted by those who identify the opponents as docetic Christians, involving the water and the blood as referencing either Jesus' birth or his physical death, but they would say that this is a mere reading passage, that the author here is emphasizing that Jesus came by water and blood because the docetic Christians were denying these things. They were denying Jesus' birth or Jesus' death. Now, there are a couple of other passages that usually get brought out, and these are admitted to be just kind of secondary evidence. They're not as clear, but in the sake of being completely forthright, I want to read these and discuss them. So the opening two verses of 1 John say this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And so the argument is that this passage seems to stress the actual physicality of Jesus, his visibility, the tangibility of his person, and it is suggested that this is another mere reading passage, namely that the opponents don't believe in the physicality of Jesus. They don't think that he is a real, tangible, fleshly person. So the author has to begin by pointing out that, hey, this is someone that we've looked at, we've touched, we've seen, we've beheld, and it makes all those points. A few verses later, in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, it indicates that if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And so the mere reading of this passage suggests that the author is stressing that Jesus died with his actual blood. It's the blood of Jesus, meaning that it is pointing to the real, legitimate, genuine death of Jesus as a human being because the opponents don't believe that Jesus was a real human being, and they don't believe that he tangibly died, and so the author has to stress the blood of Jesus. We can see a little bit more of this in chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 1 John 2, verse 2. So again, it's the death of Jesus that is the propitiation for our sins. He is someone who really died. He died not just for us, but also for the entire world. So more discussion there on the death and the blood of Jesus, presumably as a deliberate mere reading to emphasize the reality of Jesus' death against those who deny it. Okay, so those are the passages that scholars bring forth in order to argue that the opponents of 1 John are docetists. Okay, now scholars will look at all of the evidence that we have of docetic writings, docetic teachers, docetic schools, and even the Christian heresiologists that actually write books against docetic believers. And they've taken all those passages and they've actually found that we can define uh, docetism in three different ways. 
And so I'm going to trot those out because I think the more specificity we get with a topic like this, the better we're going to be able to approach the text for interpretive purposes with any sort of intelligence. So the first type of docetism is described as monophysite docetism. What is monophysite docetism? Well, this docetism argues that Jesus was not a genuine human being. He only appeared to be human. In reality, Jesus was some sort of non-human substance that was impassable and it was immaterial. And this particular type of docetism would deny the reality of any suffering that Jesus experienced. And of course, it would naturally deny the reality of Jesus' death. Who's a good example of someone who believed in monophysite docetism? Well, Marcion is a good example. So according to Tertullian, who has actually written a book against Marcion, Marcion taught that Jesus was an unborn manifestation of God. And this is presumably why Marcion did not begin his version of the Gospel of Luke with a birth narrative or with any infancy narrative, which, of course, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, indicates that Jesus actually did come into existence by the creative act of God's Holy Spirit. So instead, Marcion taught that Jesus just kind of appeared in Capernaum and he began his ministry. Now, Marcion drew quite heavily on a passage like Romans chapter 8, verse 3, which has Paul saying that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so Marcion concluded, based on this passage, that if Jesus only had the likeness of flesh, then his flesh was not real. It was not genuine. He only had the likeness of flesh. And so Marcion would say that Jesus was not a legitimate member of the human race. And this, of course, is what Marcion taught in many of his churches. And if you're not familiar, Marcion had a lot of Marcionite churches in the second century. And so there are a variety of passages that talk about that, and even Irenaeus talks about it in his document called Against Heresies. So Marcion is a great example of someone who believed and taught monophysite docetism. There's another figure named Saturninus, and according to Irenaeus, Saturninus taught, quote, that a savior was without birth, without body, and without figure, but he was by supposition a visible man, end quote. And that's in Irenaeus's work against heresies. So Irenaeus is telling us that there's this docetic teacher who is saying that Jesus didn't really have a birth, he didn't really have a body, he didn't even have a real figure, he was just supposed to be, by supposition, a man that was just kind of visible. We also have evidence from Ignatius indicating that he wrote against docetic believers. Now, to be fair, these actually come all from the letters that are in the middle recension. None of these letters, the letter to the Smyrnaeans, the letter to the Magnesians, and the letter to the Trallians, none of these are actually included in the three shorter recension 
collection. And there's been a lot of scholarly work recently that has called into question the legitimacy of the middle recension letters. But I do want to point out just for the sake of the argument that in these middle recension letters, which clearly show sign of being tampered with and developed for hundreds of years after the life of Ignatius, these letters in multiple places are describing the combating of not just docetism, but monophysite docetism. So if these letters, the Smyrnaeans, Magnesians, and Trallians, are describing fights from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, then it's interesting that docetism, at least monophysite docetism, is alive and well during those periods. So I'm kind of putting an asterisk over Ignatius here because all of his evidence comes from disputed parts of his corpus. The next passage we can look at is from the Apocryphal Acts of John. It's an apocryphal book of Acts, supposedly written by John, but it's clearly apocryphal, written sometime between 150 and 200. It's hard to be any clearer than that, so middle to late second century. And the Acts of John teaches a Jesus who is not really human, but rather, quote, he is immaterial and incorporeal, end quote. And in the Acts of John, Jesus does not eat. He does not leave any footprints on the ground when he walks. And he's able to change his appearance at any moment that he would like. He can change his appearance at will. And in this particular document, Jesus tells John that he was not the person on the cross and he did not suffer any aspects of the crucifixion process. So clearly, Jesus is explaining that he himself is docetic. He didn't suffer. He actually wasn't the person that was on the cross. He didn't have to eat because he doesn't have a real human body. So that's the apocryphal Acts of John. We have more evidence in the Latin infancy gospel, which depicts Jesus as a baby who has no weight. He is weightless. He's a sort of immaterial being that kind of is a phantom. He's like a Star Wars force ghost. And in the Latin Embassy Gospel, Jesus never cries because he's not in any sort of pain as a child. And so it seems that this is a Gnostic Infancy Gospel. The next document is the Ascension of Isaiah. We have quite a bit of evidence describing monophysite docetism. And so in the Ascension of Isaiah, Jesus just appears as a small child without any sort of process of labor for Mary, nor any evidence that an actual birth has taken place. Jesus just kind of appears as a small child. He's just there, but there's no human birth that takes place. The Apocryphal Acts of Peter has a lot of the same. In the Apocryphal Acts of Peter, it says that Jesus did, in fact, eat and drink but it was not for any real physical need. It was only to keep up the sake of appearance in order to trick the disciples. It's very interesting. He didn't really need to eat or drink. He was just doing it for the sake of appearance. And in the Gospel of Peter, another apocryphal gospel, during the crucifixion of Jesus, he was in no pain, no pain at all, and he was completely silent Presumably, he was 
unbothered by the nails going into his hands and his feet and the process of suffocation. He's just completely silent. He has no pain at all. He doesn't cry out. And it's suggested that this is a docetic document. So we have a lot of evidence of monophysite docetism from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. That's the first type of docetism. The second type is oranosarkic docetism. And this combines two Greek words. Oranos is the word for heaven, and sarkic involves flesh. So it has to do with a flesh that comes from heaven. So the definition of this type of docetism insists that Jesus really did possess a body, but it wasn't a body of flesh. It wasn't a human body. And the logic of this is that because Adam was sinful, Jesus could not possibly have a sinful body from Adam, so Jesus' body must have been composed from some sort of cosmic heavenly material. It was a heavenly body, not a fleshly body. So who is a good example of oranosarkic docetism? Well, we have a disciple of Marcion named Apelles. And according to Tertullian, who wrote against Apelles, he believed that, quote, he, Jesus, borrowed his flesh from the stars and from the substances of the higher world, end quote. So this is a body that Jesus has, but it's not a fleshly body from the humanity of Adam. It is a body from the higher world, from these substances of the stars. The most famous adherent to Ranosarkic docetism is Valentinus. Valentinus. So Valentinus taught that Jesus possessed a body of heavenly flesh that he did not get from his mother Mary. And Tertullian tells us all about this. Valentinus also taught that we should regard Jesus as someone who, quote, a body, therefore, was spun for him out of invisible psychic substance, and it arrived in the world of sense with power from a divine preparation, end quote. Valentinus also taught that Jesus, quote, passed through the Virgin Mary as water through a pipe, neither receiving nor borrowing anything from her, end quote. And we can see that quote from Valentinus in Pseudo-Tertullian and also in Irenaeus. So Valentinus also seems to believe that Jesus has a heavenly body and that the birth of Jesus did take place, but it was just Jesus passing through Mary like water goes through a pipe, and he didn't get anything from her. He didn't get any humanity from her. He didn't assume human nature or impersonal human nature. He got nothing at all from Mary. And Valentinus was also drawing quite heavily from Romans chapter 8, verse 3, as we saw Marcion did, in an attempt to prove that Jesus did not possess sinful flesh. So, arguably, Marcion and Valentinus are misreading Paul in Romans chapter 8. Imagine that. Paul is difficult to understand. Anyone reading Paul knows exactly what that means.
Okay, so that's the second type of docetism. The third type is a replacement docetism. What is replacement docetism? So replacement docetism is a type of docetism in which it only seemed or appeared that Jesus died on the cross, but in actuality, he was replaced at the last possible moment by someone else. And none of those people looking upon Jesus at the moment of his death could actually see or notice this hidden swap that took place. So a good example of a replacement docetic Christian is Basilides. He actually was the leader of a very famous Gnostic school in Alexandria, Egypt in the beginning of the second century, sometime between 120 and 140. And Basilides, in his Basilidean Gnosticism, taught that Jesus was the manifestation of Nous, who was the firstborn of the unknown father. And Jesus, according to Basilides, appeared to those who saw him as a man who died, but neither of these things were actually true. He wasn't human and he did not die. So if Jesus didn't die, who actually died on the cross? Well, Basilides said that it was Siren of Cyrene who was magically transfigured by Jesus to look like Jesus and Siren of Cyrene died on the cross and Jesus swapped and took the appearance of Simon and they just kind of swapped places there. And we can read about this in Irenaeus who wrote against heresies. Another good example of replacement docetism comes from a book called The Second Treatise of the Great Seth. And in this document, Jesus speaks of his death as an event, quote, which they think happened, end quote, but in reality, quote, they nailed their man up there to their death for their minds did not see me, end quote. So we have another example there of replacement docetic Christology. And the last example of replacement docetism is from the Apocalypse of Peter. So we've got a lot of apocryphal works in this particular episode. I, of course, am not suggesting that you should add these to your Bible or that you should add these to your canon, but they help us to understand a lot of historical theology and a lot of church history, and they help us to set documents like First John in their appropriate context. So what is the Apocalypse of Peter? Well, this seems to be a docetic work. And in the Apocalypse of Peter, it describes Jesus as laughing and indicating that an actual substitution took place. So here, it is Jesus talking, and he said, quote, He whom you saw on a tree, glad and laughing, this is the living Jesus, but this one into whose hands and feet they drive the nails is his fleshly part, which is the substitute being put to shame. The one who came into being in his likeness, end quote. So it literally says that the Jesus that was on the cross, that was a substitute that was being put into shame. That was someone else who was in the likeness of Jesus. So I think we could pretty clearly see that there are not just one type of docetism that's out there. We've got three different types. We have those that believe that 
the death and the suffering of Jesus wasn't real because it was replaced. That's replacement Gnosticism. We have those that think that Jesus did not have an actual human fleshly body and that his body was some sort of heavenly cosmic material. That's Uranosarchic Docetism. And then we have the most prominent version, which is Monophysite Docetism, which just completely rejects the reality of Jesus being human in any sort of way. He just appeared to be human. He just seemed to be human, but he was immaterial, impassable, and because of this, he didn't really die, and he definitely did not suffer. All right. So that is the argument that scholars, and many scholars do this, they put this in favor as being the identity of the opponents in 1 John. Of course, we read all the passages that describe that. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and of course, two passages that emphasize the death and blood of Jesus. This moves us to our second point. Point number two, arguments against the theory of docetic opponents in 1 John. So the arguments against identifying the opponents as docetic Christians basically can be summarized into three rebuttals. Okay, here they are. Rebuttal number one. The passages used to suggest that the opponents are docetic are being selected uncritically. And this is really important to kind of think about the details that are being offered in this rebuttal. So what we have in 1 John is actually a very clear description of the opponents earlier in the letter, not all the way towards the end in chapter 4, but we have one in chapter 2. So I want to read this passage in chapter 2, verse 18 through 19. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. That's chapter 2, verse 18 through 19. And the most important point to get out of this passage is that we can see the opponents formally belong to the community, even though language is kind of writing them off like they never really were of us, but they were formally part of it, but they left. They went out from us. And these people that left are described as Antichrist. So they were formerly members, but they have left. They have seceded from the Johannine community. Now, when you take that passage, which seems very, very clear, it talks about who the people are, what happened to them, where they formerly were, and where they have gone. We can compare that with the main passage that is used to identify the docetic opponents in chapter 4. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, do not believe every spirit, test spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And the passage goes on and describes that you need to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and if you don't confess Jesus, then you are not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And there are some very clear differences between these two passages. So in chapter 4, 
This passage is talking about wandering and traveling false prophets. They are itinerant false prophets that are just going out in the world. But these persons are clearly not the same people who were described earlier in chapter 2, those who were former members of the community who have left the community. If someone has left your church, you don't describe them as many false prophets who have gone out into the world. That doesn't seem to be the same description describing the same group of persons. But those who offer a rebuttal against the docetic view say that people are uncritically assuming that the opponents are being described in chapter 4 along with chapter 2, but in reality, these are describing two different groups of people. To where it's clear that the opponents are in chapter 2, meaning those who have left the community, those who have seceded from the Christian community, but chapter 4, it's argued, is describing a different group of persons. Because false prophets going out into the world is not the way that people would describe people that were formerly part of a community, but they have left for one reason or another. The rebuttal also points out that the denial that's mentioned in 1 John 4 verse 3 says that these people are those who do not confess Jesus. These are the ones who are not from God. They're not denying the flesh of Jesus. They're just not confessing Jesus. They're just rejecting Jesus altogether. So it's called into question even the reading and the emphasis that's actually being placed on the flesh in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, let's just say for the sake of the argument that you're to accept that 1 John 4, verse 2 is actually talking about the identity of the opponents. Let's just hypothetically assume that that is true. Then what you're actually forced to admit is that the main issue of the letter, if you're suggesting that the opponents are docetic and 1 John is written to shore up faith and to strengthen the faith of the readers in light of docetic heresies, you're actually forced to admit that this main issue is completely unmentioned explicitly in the first three-fourths of the letter, and it only appears in the last one-fourth of it. And this is actually completely uncharacteristic of the ways in which epistles were composed in the first century. Take, for example, the letters of Paul, where he almost exclusively puts the purpose statement of his letter, the reason why he's writing a letter, Paul will say it in the first few sentences. Or even take someone like Jude, where he talks about the need to contend earnestly for the faith in the third verse. We're going to assume that 1 John is different, and it's going to give the identity of the opponents and the particular issue that's at stake, that they're denying the flesh of Jesus, not in the first three-fourths of the book, but in the last one-fourth of the book. That actually doesn't seem to fit the ways in which letters were composed in the first century. So that's the first rebuttal, which calls into question whether the opponents that have left the community are actually being described in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And the argument is that that is actually talking about a different group of persons, traveling false prophets, not those who have seceded from the community.
Okay, what is the second rebuttal? Rebuttal number two, First John lacks any clear or specific statements describing docetic teaching. Now, there aren't any mere reading passages in First John that will stress the reality of Jesus' birth or the genuineness of his death or the legitimacy of his resurrection. But you might say, well, you just read a bunch of mere reading passages that have a positive argument in the first two verses of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 6. But the argument is that these are not explicit pieces of data. They don't explicitly say docetic teachings. And the point is they could be read in lots of other ways. Many people read these passages and they don't think that, oh, this is clearly a positive statement against docetic teachings. People read these in lots of different ways. It's not self-evident that they are mere reading against docetic heresies. There's nothing definitive nor explicit in them that tell us these teachings that the supposed docetic opponents are actually espousing. For example, the first two verses of chapter 1, the one that talks about that which is from the beginning, that we've seen and we've touched and we've heard and we've looked upon, it actually in the Greek is using a neuter relative pronoun. It's not using a masculine relative pronoun, which we would expect if it's referring to the reality of Jesus, the tangible physicality of Jesus, the male human being that we've seen and touched and heard and looked upon. It's not using a masculine relative pronoun. It's using a neuter relative pronoun, likely referring to the broad experiences involving Jesus, but it doesn't refer to the person of Jesus himself. So even the first two verses get interpreted uncritically by those who think that it is giving a positive mere reading of what the docetic Christians are actually saying. That's the second rebuttal. The third rebuttal is that if the opponents taught that the flesh of Jesus only seemed or appeared to be real, then why is there not a stronger emphasis on Jesus' true flesh in 1 John? In other words, if the flesh of Jesus has come under attack, why is the flesh of Jesus not more explicitly discussed? The Greek noun sarx, the word translated as flesh, only appears one time in 1 John, and that's in chapter 4, verse 2. This is hardly the quantity of a particular key word that we would expect from 1 John if indeed 1 John was written to strengthen the faith in the reality of Jesus' flesh against those who are denying it. In other words, if 1 John was written to encourage Christians of the reality of Jesus' flesh, it doesn't make sense that the flesh of Jesus only mentioned one time in the book. That doesn't seem to be a good way of reading the evidence as a whole. So those are three arguments that scholars have put forth against identifying the opponents as docetic Christians. And in the end, I'm not convinced that the opponents of 1 John are, in fact, docetic Christians. I look at the arguments from both sides, and I tend to think that the argument against docetic Christians is actually much stronger. I think that, in particular, 
the argument in favor of the opponents is uncritically reading text, particularly chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the texts that are actually describing two different groups of persons. We have those who left in the community in chapter 2 and those who are traveling false prophets out in the world in chapter 4, and those who think that the opponents are Docetic Christians have to collapse these two groups as one and the same group. But that doesn't seem to be the most natural way of reading this. So, if the opponents of First John are not Gnostics, and they're not Docetic Christians, could they potentially be followers of Serenthus, a teacher who claimed that Jesus and the Christ were two separate things that were united at his baptism, but they were separated at the cross. Please look forward to our next episode, where we look at the pros and cons of this separationist Christology theory in regard to the opponents of First John. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.